You're listening to a sermon by Hope Bible Church Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at hopeniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. And then, I mean, those are the big things. And think of the, 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 the wonders, the grandeur, the beauty you can hold close to yourself, like the, a precious newborn. Or how about just the, the wonder of human love, the miracle of life itself. So it's not all doom and gloom. We, we look around and we're like, there's a lot to like in this world. It's incredible. We, we can sing with Louis Armstrong, what a wonderful world. <laughs> but it's also a terrible world. It's terrible. All you got to do is just, just peruse the news any day of the week. I don't care what news outlet. I don't care. And there's all kinds of things that you read about, that you see, that you witness, that will break your heart, that are unjust, that are disastrous, so much unrest, and yes, death. And so it, it leads us to ask, it's a reasonable question, a fair question, a good question. Why? When God created the world, we read in the Bible, he said it was very good. But we look around and we see, yes, there's lots of goodness, but there's a lot of badness. We've been studying our, in our series here, our teaching series, on the subject of the afterlife, like what happens after death. Well, today we're, we're just really looking at why is there death at all? Where did this actually come from? And that's actually what our scripture text today addresses. It, it helps us to understand why there is so much misery in this life, and let's get personal, it's going to give you insight into why there's so much misery in your life and in mine. But that's not the only thing it emphasizes. In fact, we'll see the main thing it emphasizes is not only the answer to our question, but also emphasizes the fact that there is much, much hope. In fact, it impresses on believers the greatness of the reality of our hope in the afterlife. The passage that I'm thinking of that I want to share with you today is in the book of Romans, chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Again, we're in this series on the afterlife, what happens when I die. And uh, we've covered a lot of territory as you turn into Romans 8. If you're using the Bible, if you don't have a Bible with you, just in front of you, there should be nearby a Bible tucked under the chairs, some of the chairs in front of you. Just grab hold of that. They're there for you to use, also there for you to take. If you don't have a copy of God's Word at home, I'd love for you to take one home with you. Just take it with you. Somebody stops you, said, Ross said I could have it, all right? You're good. And just open that up to page 888, 888, for Romans 8, the great 8, as some believers would say. In fact, if my mentor, Dr. Bill McRae, was here, he would tell you this is the greatest chapter in the greatest book in the Bible, Romans chapter 8. It's so great because it tells us with such power and clarity the greatness of our hope and the assurance that we have in Jesus. In fact, it begins, it begins Romans 8 verse 1 by telling us that if you're in Christ, there is no condemnation. So there's, there's no, you, you don't need to fear hell and judgment to come. It's amazing. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It ends with the statement that for us who are in Christ, there is no separation. 
There's no separation from the love of God. God has loved you, particularly in Jesus, with a saving love. If you're trusting in Jesus, you've got a special saving love relationship with God that you'll never be separated from. He, he loves you today in Jesus as much as he will love you a million years from now in heaven. It's a great book. So it starts with no condemnation, so you don't need to fear death and judgment and hell. Ends with no separation, so you don't need to be afraid you're going to lose it. It's like when God seals you, it's for keeps. It's a done deal. No one and nothing can change that. So no condemnation, no separation, and then everything in between is about how to live this life as we look forward to the salvation that we have. It's a great chapter. That's why we often call it the Great Eight. In the midst of this talk about how to live the Christian life, Paul addresses particularly how to handle, or more specifically, how to view hardships, difficulty, and how to understand death. And what he offers for us here is what I would say is a, a helpful, vital perspective for you and I to have. Let's look and see what it says here. Romans 8 at verse 18. So really, basically right in the middle of the chapter. He says... For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, or the sons and daughters of God. What was that talk about? Well, that's looking forward to some stuff we've already talked about in our series, something that's going to happen. That Remember we said that when a believer dies, the moment you die, the Bible teaches that you go to be with, G with Jesus immediately, immediately. Do not pass go, do no detours, no waiting rooms, straight to be with the Lord immediately. In a coming day, though, he's got more in store for you. He's going to take that body that, that's letting you down and will let you down, and he will raise up and give you a resurrected body that will never let you down, that will be fit for eternity, and we will spend eternity with him forever. When's he going to raise you? When's this eternity forever come? When he returns. This is what Paul is talking about. This time is what he's talking about when he refers to the revealing of the sons of God. We don't look like much now, but in that day, we, it will be revealed for who we really are in Jesus. That's what he's talking about. And notice he says that creation waits, like he personifies creation here. Creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Explains verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility. And all God's people said, oh, well, that's a helpful insight. No wonder my week went so bad. The whole creation's been subjected to futility. You know what futility is, right? Uselessness, brokenness, broken down, right? Like that car that you drove to the wrecker a couple weeks ago. Futility, like, like, the, like your health that's going to fail you ultimately. Futility, like everything, everything. It's remember a series in Ecclesiastes? Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. It's like there's, 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 this world is frustrated with futility. That's what he's saying. He's saying the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, so the creation didn't volunteer. Hey, can we be subject to futility? No, no, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Well, who's him who subjected it? It's God. 
So God did something to creation. He subjected it to futility. But he did it, notice, in hope. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. This is, this is amazing. So the children of God, if you're in Jesus, that's you. He's talking about you. There is a glory that's to come for you, resurrected body, eternity, eternal life, that he describes here as freedom. You say, well, freedom from what? Well, freedom from bondage to corruption. So like we, we break down, and there, there's wonderful things here in this world, we get that, but there's also death and destruction and misery, and it's like we can't shake it, we can't get away from it, and we have this sense of, we know, unless the Lord returns, it's gonna come and get me. But the Bible tells, Paul says here, there's a freedom that we have in Jesus that we will realize in the future, and the creation is going to participate in that too. Well, what's that talking about? Well, he's talking about eternity and a new heaven and new earth when God makes all things new. I'm going to talk more about that next week. But this is exactly what Paul is describing here. He explains further, verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. What's childbirth feel like? Apparently painful. There's groanings. Paul says, yeah, you see? But it's childbirth. It's not pangs of death. So something good is coming. There's going to be, there's, there's, a, there's a hopeful outcome, but right now it's painful, it's, it's miserable. Paul's like, that, that's the picture that we have here. That's the reality. That's the picture he uses to help us understand the reality. He says, verse 23, and not only the creation, so the creation groans, and not only the creation, but we ourselves. Anybody here groaning today? Anybody here groaning? We ourselves. Not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit. So we're, we're saved. But we don't have the full realization of that salvation yet. We groan inwardly. Oh, see, 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 you're not as weird as you thought you are. It's actually very normal, very common, that you would groan inwardly with grief and sorrow and disappointment and even pain. We groan inwardly. Notice, though, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. Love that picture. So we're adopted. The papers are signed. But we're just waiting the pickup day when we'll go to our forever home. Love it. <laughs> it's, it's great. It's awful right now. But see what Paul's showing us? He's like helping us to understand here. Why? Why is this like this? Well, some, some things have happened. Some things have happened, but, but good is coming. Verse 23 again, not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. See, resurrection. The redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. In other words, it's coming. It's coming. It's coming. But we're saved in hope. We've got a hope. So it's, there's a future full realization that's to come. 
But right now, we're, we wait. And while we wait, loved ones, we groan. The main point that Paul is making in this passage is this, is that present suffering is insignificant compared to future glory. Present suffering is insignificant compared to future glory. He begins verse 18 by using that phrase, I consider. That's his, this is a way of thinking. He says, so I, I, what, this is how I think about this. This is how I reckon this. This is how I, 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 uh, this is how I, I choose to see this. It's not, a, it's not a statement of feeling. It's not saying, here's how I feel about this. How I feel about it is I groan inwardly. Because there's grief, and there's difficulty, and there's misery, and there's sadness, and there's disappointment. There's death. But how I think about it is according to the truth, he says. I consider that the sufferings of this present time that are real, that are significant, that when you compare them to the glory that's to come, all of a sudden those sufferings right now that are significant become comparatively insignificant. Think of it this way. A million dollars is significant. All agree? A million dollars? Significant. Oh, a lot of wealthy people in this room. Okay. All right. A couple of us say, a million dollars is significant. Okay. But compared to a trillion dollars, well, that million dollars all of a sudden doesn't become all that significant. Like if you lost a million dollars, you would be, can you imagine? Like you just, you just never forgive yourself, right? I just lost a million dollars. I had it here in my gym bag and I set it down to get out a Coke and out of the Coke machine and it's just gone. Million dollars gone. But if you still had a trillion you'd probably go to sleep okay. That Maybe a little annoyed, frustrated, like I can't believe somebody did that. I was going to give it to charity, whatever. But you still got a trillion. It's, it's not significant in comparison. That's what Paul's saying. He's not saying your pain doesn't matter. He's not saying suck it up, buttercup. He, he's not saying, you know, uh, you just, you just got to look on the bright side. Okay? No, the world talks like that. Christians don't talk like that. No, there, there, is, there is significant suffering. But we don't just tell ourselves, look on the bright side. Don't we declare what the bright side is? What the truth is. There's more truth here than what meets the eye. What appears to be is misery. But Paul says, but I think about the truth. I consider what's to come. And what's to come shows me that these sufferings that are expressed as groanings and bondage to decay, he says, are actually in the light of eternity in heaven with the Lord forever, not makes these, these current sufferings seem insignificant. Here's the important thing for you to understand. It's this, is that we have, we have an already not yet salvation right here. We have an already not yet salvation. What do I mean by that? We are saved in Jesus. If, you, if you're trusting in Jesus, you are saved from the penalty of sin and into God's forever family. No condemnation, no separation. It's your, you, so you're saved. It's signed, sealed, delivered, done. You're secure in Jesus. You are not going to hell. You're going to heaven. And Jesus guarantees it. So if you're saved, you're saved. But there is an element that Paul shows us here that we need to understand, a significant element. There's a...
that. It's the resurrection. It's one day sooner. Not yet in this year. But there's, as we wait now, we use the word patiently, use the word. Which actually isn't hard for us to understand. I mean, who, who enjoys the waiting room anywhere? Right? They sit there all together. You wonder, well, what more illnesses I'll have before I leave? There's. As we wait, glory. About the end of. Christians face. Joy. You can anticipate. God, in His wisdom, has ordained that His children, His blood bought sheep, will not receive all the benefits of their salvation all at once. Not yet. But instead, he's ordained that we will live in this fallen world and experience its fallenness, including death. For believers, death is not a punishment because Jesus has taken all punishment. For believers, we have the hope that while God has his reasons, we have the hope that even in spite of death, we are victorious. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that the last enemy to be defeated will be death, and Jesus will crush it fully and forever. Now, I highlight this because there's false teachers, lots of false teachers in our day, who would say that Jesus died to make you healthy and wealthy now. And in fact, I've, I've heard some who would say that if you are going through misery and disappointment and discouragement and depression, that, that is because you do not have enough faith in the Lord. And there is, that God did not save you to, for you to go through those experiences. The reality is, is I, I just think that is at best, I'll just, be, I'll just be gracious. That's highly misleading. Highly misleading. There is a sense in which God did save you to make you healthy and wealthy. Make you healthy and wealthy. In heaven forever. But not here. Not here. If that is the case, then Paul the Apostle needed serious help. He suffered immensely. Even as he wrote many of his epistles, we know he was imprisoned. Our salvation, loved ones, get this in your minds. It is accompanied by sufferings as we wait for glory to come. So that, that still hangs, leaves us hanging with the question, why is there present suffering? Why is there illness? Why is there viruses? Why is, why is there disasters? Why are there diseases? Why is there death and dying? And that's what Paul is he, starting to explain in the first part of this text, beginning of verse 19. Just look at it again, verse 19. He says, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And then he explains, here's, here's the deal, verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility... Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. So why is there present suffering? Well, the answer is there's present suffering because creation is cursed by God. 
Creation is cursed by God. When I say cursed by God, I don't mean like he swore at it. I mean that he subjected it. He, he took the conditions of creation and changed them, altered them, so that there is, while there is still beauty and wonder and splendor, there is also fallenness and decay and death. This takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. When the first people sinned, God cursed the earth, changed the conditions. It went from a perpetually life-giving place to a place where there is life, but there's also death. When the first people sinned, God, before they ever sinned, God told them that if they did, they would surely die. And this is exactly what's happened. So to understand our present suffering, we've got we to gotta understand this. As we think about why there is present suffering, we have to understand it's, it's because to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So it's a very hopeful passage, but I'm just, just showing you here, what is he saying about creation itself right now? It's in bondage. If you're in bondage, like you're in chains. You, you, can't, you can't go anywhere. You can't move. You want to get away. You don't want to be in this situation, but you, you, you can't change it. You're stuck. That's the reality. And that's what happened in Genesis 3 when, when the first people sinned that, that God cursed, cursed the earth and death entered into the situation. And that's why, there's, that's why there's death and sorrow and misery. It's because we live in a world that is cursed. In fact, Paul says in Romans 5, sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death came into the world through sin. So why is there present suffering? Because creation is cursed by God. What's the result of creation being cursed by God? Everything is broken and in bondage to death. That's why. I'm not saying, not saying that, there is a, that there's a particular tie to a particular. So some people will think, okay, so if it's, if it's, maybe it's a particular sin, if I do a particular sin, then God's going to strike me dead. Well, God is sovereign. But understand this, that it's the reality is, is that how this thing functions is, is broken and out of whack. That's why there is so much destruction, so much sorrow. Leads to this question. Why did God curse creation? I mean, he made it. He said it was good. Well, God cursed creation because of sin. He told Adam and Eve, he told Adam that the day you eat the tree I forbid you to eat from, you will surely die. He disobeyed God. He believed he could find satisfaction and joy in his own way. He believed that God was holding out on him. He believed he fell for the lie that there's something more here to be had that God is withholding from me. And he rebelled against God. And when that happened, God cursed all of creation. And that's how we end up in this mess that we're in. Disease, disaster, and death. I should say, loved ones, that... Theologically speaking, death is not natural. People say, right, well, death is just a natural part of life. No, it's actually highly unnatural, and I think we innately know it. That's why we're so torn up at the cemetery. That, that's why there's, there's, there's tears of grief and anguish. Yes, the missing, the longing, that's huge. But even that's assigned to us. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. This, this isn't Right? I still remember standing at a graveside and hearing a father as I'm trying to bring some kind of comfort, some kind of hope, as I'm reading a passage of scripture and he just shouts over me, why? Why? 
we know innately this is not the way it should be. Death is not natural. It is a consequence of sin. And the thing that you and I need to, we need to put our theological hats on. Okay, we're going to go into the deep end. You ready? Great. I don't know if you brought your water wings today. We just, well, I want to bring you out in the deep end a little bit. Think about what might God be doing? More than one thing. More than one thing. But what might God be doing in cursing the earth? I think one thing that he's doing is he's showing us in graphic, feeling detail the horrors of sin. Broadly speaking, we're way too okay with sin. We're way too okay with it. I'm not saying you don't feel bad. I'm not saying you haven't shed tears over sin this week. Some of you have. I'm not trying to minimize that. But broadly speaking, even in church, most of us are more or less not terribly bothered by our sin. Lust, selfishness, greed, envy. We may be embarrassed by these things. We may feel badly, but rarely torn up about grieving God. Paul says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. What how much hand-wringing have you done this week over the ways that you've grieved the Spirit? Maybe some, maybe some. But my guess is lots of us, if we're honest, say, not a lot. We even justify ourselves, don't we? we slander somebody, say, yeah, well, she deserved it. She had it coming. We get back at somebody, God says, vengeance is mine. But we have a way of, yeah, but it's sweet feels good. Obscene talk, we say, oh, everybody does it. What does it matter anyway? Consuming pornography in your basement by the hour, who's it hurting? Uh, a lot more than you think. We're overwhelmingly way too okay with sin. But as soon as illness comes our way, as soon as disease hits our family, as soon as disaster hits our neighborhood or our community, when death hits our household, Oh, the grief. Oh, the sorrow. Oh, the tears. Oh, the regrets. We even cry out to God and plead with him for answers and mercy and comfort. And I'm not down on that. I'm not belittling that. But you see what I'm saying? We're way too okay with sin. And one of the things that we see in Scripture, beginning in Genesis all the way through Revelation is that death and all that accompanies it serves as a high-definition picture of the horrors, the true horrors of our treasonous hearts toward the king of the universe. You want to know how bad sin is, really? Then go to grief, loved one. Go to the graveyard. Go to the hospital bed. Go to the calamity. Again, I'm not saying that bad things happen because of specific sins, like God, God will get you. I'm not, I'm not preaching that message this morning. I believe that God has baked into life so many natural consequences. And remember, if you were in Jesus, God's work for you is to discipline you, to sanctify you, to make you more and more like Christ. Punishment has been paid. But you see, though, that in cursing the earth, what's happened 
is he's given us a picture that we can feel, that we get of just how awful sin really is. That's why God cursed creation. God cursed creation because of sin. One pastor puts it this way. Calamities are God's previews of what sin deserves. And listen, and one day we'll receive in judgment a thousand times worse. Now, if you're in Jesus, you're spared that judgment. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But they go on to say, the calamities, sorrows, and death in this life, these are wake-up calls to see the moral horrors and spiritual ugliness of sin. I know this is weighty and this is heavy. But the afterlife, we've really got to get our minds around why is there death at all? And since there is death, what, is God, what, what does God do with this? And how do we process this? And how do we see this? So just to review here, why is there present suffering? Well, because creation is cursed by God. He's subjected it, Paul says, to futility. What's the result of creation being cursed? What's that done to things? It's broken. It's in bondage to death. I don't need to convince you that. You know that already. Why did God curse creation? He cursed creation because of sin. And now it is really for us a picture, a parable, if you will, of the horrors of sin. Now, my fourth, I got, you can see I've got some questions and answers. Here's my last question and answer. It says, how is it that God cursed creation in hope? Because that's, that's what he says in the text, in verse 20. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Why, why did, how is it that God cursed the creation, but did it in hope? Well, he says in verse 21, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain or to get the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So here's how I put it to you. God cursed creation temporarily in hope of salvation in Christ ultimately. This creation, this world as we know it, is cursed by God. It's subject to futility. But there's coming a day when there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Again, you want to be back here next week. Very, very helpful, very encouraging message next week. We've got to understand this, though. That that is coming, and, and that is the hope that we have. So, so God, has, he, he cursed creation, yes, because of sin, but that's not the end of the story. That, that it, wasn't, it wasn't his heart, and it's not his plan that this would be all that there is. There's something more, something greater to come that will replace this, that is hopeful for us. And it's the salvation that we have in Jesus. We await our full and final salvation. We await right now our full and final salvation, where we'll be taken home to be with the Lord, but get be raised from the dead, have these new bodies, and live with the Lord Jesus, dwell in his eternal kingdom, uh, never to die again, never, to, never to, to hear bad news reports, no more injustice, no more tears, no more misery, no more sorrows, 
it's going to be amazing. And when God cursed creation, that's the hopeful view he had in the future. I'm going to do this now, but this isn't the end of the story because he knew his plan was that Jesus would come into the world and he would be the rescuer to rescue this world and the residents therein for all who had trusted him, that we can have this salvation and be set free from this. It's, it's wonderful. We're in a kind of bondage right now in a sense that we feel because we're in these bodies that are failing, are going to let us down, but we are actually free and you're going to see and realize the fullness of that freedom someday when Jesus returns. I'm telling you, it's coming. It's here in the text. It's coming. It's coming. It's coming. And creation, Paul personifies creation and says, creation is excited with you. It's giddy with you because it knows it's going to get a makeover too. And it's not going to be breaking down and you're not going to bury your pets in heaven. There will be pets in heaven. I don't know about cats, but dogs will be there. I don't know. Anyway, that's next week's message. That's next week. You get your arguments already for me. What's the glory of the freedom of the children of God? It's freedom from sin and all its effects. When we cry out why at the graveyard, I understand. I understand. It's from a depth of sorrow that is beyond all human comfort, save for God. But there is hope in the cry of the Christian that there's freedom to come and glory and a citizenship that we have in a place where there will be no cemeteries. God has ordained that the whole creation will one day be made new. That the salvation that he has in store for us when Christ returns will be reflected and even obtained by the new creation itself. That's why creation groans with the pains of childbirth. Just as a brief aside, and I think I already said this, but forgive me, I can't remember, but I think I already said this. This, this paragraph that we're reading today, for me, was just a huge mental breakthrough, I would say about, about 14, 15 years ago. I really, really struggled with, and lots of you are just like, that's just crazy. But if there's a few, this will help. Hopefully this will help you. I really struggled with this notion of God destroying the earth because I had a hard time understanding why the earth in the first place. Like, why would God create this world, this universe, in all of its splendor and glory, only to one day just <laughs> obliterate it all and start something new. It seemed to me, I, I couldn't, and it's hard for me to describe, and for lots of you, just like, yeah, you, yeah I'm glad you worked that out, Ross, but some of you, maybe this will help. I, I struggle with that. There is a, this doesn't make sense-ness to me, and really wrestled with actually kind of at times, quietly, a, a level of despair of trying to make sense of, or trying to formulate this Christian worldview with a big gap that I couldn't seem to fill. There was a sense in which I began to wrestle with, like, this, this life doesn't seem to make sense because I believed and I had understood that God is one day going to destroy, as in obliterate out of existence, all matter and create it new out of nothing like he did in the beginning. Reading this text and studying this text was a huge breakthrough for me. And it's elsewhere. It's all over Scripture. I do believe that God is going to 
in a sense, destroy the world. We see Peter talks about that. There's a kind of destruction that's coming but he, that is like the flood destroyed the world, but it didn't, it didn't obliterate everything out of existence. No, but actually, there was a destruction, just like there is a destruction to come. But this helped me to see that God has an eternal purpose, even making this temporary world. We'll unpack this a little more next week. But for me, this so helped me to, to make sense of the wonder and the majesty of the plan of God, that he didn't make all that there is just to obliterate it, but it will be radically made new. Creation groans with the pains of childbirth, but it will one day give birth. It will look very different, I think, than what it does now, but also there'll be a great similarity in its physicality. It's going to be so much better. Anyway, I'm preaching next week's sermon. I want to leave you with this. Think about this hope that we have in Jesus. How is it that God cursed creation in hope? God cursed creation temporarily in hope of salvation in Christ. Ultimately, if you are in Christ, your tears of heartbreak are going to give way to tears and shouts of joy. If you are not in Christ, I plead with you to come to him. To come to him. Jesus is the ultimate game changer for people. Change your life, he'll change your destiny. He can and he will. But you need to respond to him. You cannot persist in rejecting God's way to safety and find safety on your own. You know that, don't you? You need this Jesus. God has provided a way through him. So I plead with you to come to him, to trust in him. For my brothers and sisters, those who are trusting in Jesus, I'll give you these three exhortations and I'm going to close. Number one, in light of what we're seeing here, cling to what God says. Cling to what God says in the face of disaster, disease, and death. Let God's word be your go-to in the face of bad news, in the face of uncertainty, in the midst of your tears. This is an important exhortation for a couple reasons. One, because we don't feel like it sometimes when we're really grieving. But we need to be intentional about it, clinging to what God says. It's also important because it's what God says. God says this is so. He says, you've got a hope, dear friend. Your outlook is not one of despair, but you have an insanely bright future ahead of you if you're in Jesus. And you need to keep that perspective. Paul says, I consider. You and I need to consider too. We need to think these ways. He shows that a matter is so important to my hoping is my thinking. So cling to what God says in the face of de- disease, disaster, and death. Second, hope in God. Hope in him by enduring patiently and waiting eagerly. Hope in him. So like bank on him. What do you, what do you say when there's nothing to say? I just got to hope in God and bank on him. I would also say that's, that's great. He's a great person to bank on. I'm not into betting. I'm against it for a lot of reasons, but 
if you were going to bet, I said, bet on God. <laughs> bet on him. All in, baby. All in. Hope in him. By enduring patiently. What do I mean by that? Well, not becoming bitter or sulking or self-absorbed. Actually, Pastor Alec and I, we had, a, we had a good, healthy discussion this week about the first song. I had an issue with the first, or not the first song, second song we sang, right? Second song. Because there's a line in there that bothered me. And um, I wanted to get his take on it. And so I got his take on it. And they're like, oh, okay, I hear you. And he understood where I was coming from. The line is, um, the line is, I won't complain, right? Is that the line? I won't complain. And I'm like, yeah, that just doesn't, I don't, that just doesn't land on me. It doesn't do it for me. Because I, I think biblically, there is a, a right place for, for lamenting. We see it all, I mean, you can't read through the Psalms without finding all over the place. There's crying out and lamenting, pouring out my heart before God, pouring out my frustrations, pouring out my angst before God. And so I read that. We had a good discussion about it. And I'm like, I just see that. And I think a whole bunch of our people are going to see that, see that line and either feel guilty because they have complained this week when they shouldn't feel guilty because they've just lamented before God, which is biblical. Or you're going you know, to gonna, gonna hear that and just, and just be misled that, okay, this is somehow wrong. And so, so anyway, we had a good discussion about that. But our conclusion was that if, if by complain we mean lament, then it's a terrible line, don't sing it. If by complain we mean having a grumbling spirit, becoming self-absorbed, complaining in an, in an oppositional manner toward God, then yes, we should sing, I won't complain. And actually what sold me on it, what, what I said the go-ahead was the next line, I won't complain because my hope is in you, God. Like, okay, I can live with that. Because that's how you, that's how you make it without being overcome with grumbling. is by hoping in God. So if that second line wasn't there, we wouldn't have sung that today. Just throw that in the garbage. I don't, I don't, want, I don't want that. But so, so if, if by complain, you mean grumbling spirit, I'm exhorting you to seek the Lord for his grace in that. Because we're called to endure patiently. Patiently. And we're called to wait eagerly. You see that a couple times in the text. Verse 23, we wait eagerly for adoption of sons. That's why I took it for the title of my sermon. When you wait eagerly for something, what do you do? You're on edge for it, right? You're ready. Waiting for a text message. Oh, that's probably, you know, phone rings. That's if anybody has home phones anymore. That's for me. Knock at the door. Oh yeah, that's somebody I'm waiting for. That's the Uber guy. That's my, that's my lunch. You're ready. You're on it. You're set. You know, you're checking the mail. Our minds are focused. We may be doing other things, but we were always, it's got our heart. It's got our attention. We wait eagerly. Loved ones, I think this is a good discipline for us to pray about. That God would give us an eagerness about our waiting. That even this week we would pray, come Lord Jesus. Come. Hope in him. By enduring patiently. So I, I'm going to resist that temptation to be bitter, to have a grumbling spirit. Yes, there's a place for weeping and lamenting and sharing in that, but it cannot derail my faith in him. I cannot derail my hope in him. I must hope in him. And in hoping in him, I need to wait eagerly, looking forward, looking forward. So I, I, don't, want to get, I don't want to find my comforts in just mere distractions. 
but in him. So hope in God. Thirdly, finally, this is kind of where I began my, this sermon, but try not to cry anymore, is to treasure Jesus. Treasure, treasure Jesus. That's what got me in that last song, is just how precious Jesus is. How precious he is. Some of you know, some of you are vintage, you know, hands up if you know, you don't know him personally, but if you know who I mean by George Beverly Shea, hands up nice and high, nice and high. Oh yeah, lots of gray hair, that's great. I'm, just, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, kidding, sort of. George Beverly Shea, as a young man, he's at a critical point in his life, a real turning point, and his, his mother came across a poem. And uh, he, had a, he was a real musician, and, and she thought it was a really timely poem for her son to read because she thought it would help him in a godly way to take some good direction in his life. And so she did like many mothers do when they've got older sons, is she just put that poem somewhere where he would find it, at the piano. And she quietly hoped that he would read that poem and maybe even make some music to go with it. And uh, well, she knew her son well, that's exactly what he did. He sat at that piano and he wrote some music and turned it into a very, very famous hymn. The words go like this. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hands than to be the king of a vast domain or be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. When you look into the miseries of this world, and you see that there is glory to come that ought to refresh you and I in the greatness of knowing Jesus. He's so precious. He's such a treasure. So I want to exhort you to treasure Jesus. And you say, how do I treasure Jesus? Oh, I think lots of ways. Treasure him by obeying him, submitting to him, believing on him, sharing him, but right now, worshiping him. And uh, we're not going to sing that song. Is that you're not gonna free? We could, right? We could. But, but there's another song we're going to sing that's of a similar vintage. Blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Mine. Listen. If you can say today by faith, Jesus is mine, then you have much assurance of hope. So let, let's come on and let's, let's sing that together.